This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour this Friday afternoon. I'm Cassie Huff. More wet weather is on the way for South Australia at a time when it is really not particularly welcome. Soon I'm going to tell you about some work the Bureau of Meteorology is doing to help farmers manage some of the weather-related pests and diseases. What we're trying to do is see uh, if we can develop tools and products um, that might be able to see those things coming um, each season and that might inform farmers to make different decisions that mean they you know, avoid costly expenditure during the season that was unforeseen and they maximise the profit they get out of, uh, each, out of each crop. More on that project. And we'll touch base with the uh, meat workers in Bordertown to see the latest on the situation there. But first, we will talk rural transporters because this vital link in Australia's food supply chain is sometimes exposed to difficult seasonal conditions uh, and it doesn't have really a formal support system. Australia's Livestock and Rural Transporters Association wants to create a type of self-insurance scheme to deal with the difficult years. Megan Hughes has this story. COVID-19 border closures, drought, flooding rains and the threat of animal disease incursions. Like the rest of Australia, rural truck drivers have been facing a lot of difficulties these past three years and they know there are more difficult seasons to come. Warwick Fraser owns a livestock truck fleet in southern Queensland. He says the challenges have been mounting. Add to that, obviously, the significant costs, blowouts that we've seen recently in terms of all operating costs, fuel, you know, diesel prices, you know, they have doubled. Add blue supply issues and uh, pricing there has, um, has doubled. And right through to, you know, we've come in the last three-year period, we've come through droughts, we've come through flooding rains, which are hugely disruptive to, um, to any form of transport, and now the significant staff shortages. It's certainly been an extraordinary and and challenging period for for livestock transport in general. Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association Executive Director Matthew Munro says if the pandemic proved anything, it was how important every link in the food supply chain is. Rural transport, I think as we've seen in recent years in particular, it's an essential service. Uh, Without uh, transport on the road, we see um, staple items in supermarkets that uh, can run out. And mum and dad consumers feel that pinch pretty quickly. Now the industry is hoping to better future-proof itself by establishing a type of self-insurance scheme. Mr Munro explains how it'd work. Our concept is based on the farm management deposit schemes that are already in place. Uh, They've been there and working for many years and they are in effect a a multi-peril insurance scheme, so a self-insurance scheme I should say. So a participant uh, in a good year may have surplus income and they're able to make deposits into a farm management deposit scheme in that year, uh, which would be then tax deductible uh, in the year that it's deposited, uh, but it could be withdrawn later and taxed at that point. And so a later point could be a year in which the business was struggling uh, and needed that money. 
Mr Munro envisions it would be available specifically for rural and livestock transporters who are at the mercy of seasonal conditions but critical to food security rather than the whole trucking industry. I think anyone who is dependent on the seasonal conditions could really benefit from a scheme like this. I think there are other parts of the trucking industry that uh, are not as closely dependent on seasonal conditions and wouldn't have as strong a case for a scheme like this. I mean, any any business um, does face threats and, and uh, I think everyone accepts that. It goes into business. It is, it is a, a risk that everyone takes. But I think when you're so closely dependent upon seasonal conditions, things like whether it rains or not, uh, I think there's a, a very strong case, as has been demonstrated with the Farm Management Deposit Scheme, to, um, to have a similar kind of scheme in place to deal with um, all of those type of um, threats that could come from the agricultural sector. The idea is still a while away. The industry group wants government support to undertake modelling to determine exactly how this scheme could work, what the costs would be and the net benefits for the rural transport industry. A federal government spokesperson told the ABC in a statement that they are open to further discussions. The compensation schemes available in the industry at the moment really stop at the farm gate. Mr Munro says it's important to strengthen the resilience of this link in the supply chain to keep trucks on the road and food on the shelves. What we have is a highly competitive industry with quite a bit of churn at the bottom. It can be difficult for people to get in and make a start and, and to become established in this industry. We all want low transport costs and uh, efficient transport. And so I think there always will be some churn. But I think it really impacts negatively on everyone uh, when you have unnecessary failures of businesses that really only fail because of seasonal conditions. And it's not because of any, um, you know, poor operation of the business itself. Sometimes it just comes down to timing when you've entered the business or uh, you know, a combination of circumstances that are all external. Uh, I don't think anyone would have thought about uh, you know, the combination that we've seen recently. Operators like Mr Fraser are welcoming the proactive approach. You know, when the chips are down, look, you, you need all these sort of types of ideas and, and, and options available. Somewhat insurance policies there for, um, for when times times get tough. I think it's great that um, that the industry is looking at, at these issues um, importantly and, and putting them on the table and particularly giving them oxygen at a state and federal level. Warwick Fraser, who runs a livestock truck fleet, finishing that report from Megan Hughes. It's certainly an industry that has seen a lot of fluctuation in the last year, not just seasonal conditions, but COVID as well. So we'll see how that to pitch for a more uh, formal support system goes. But uh, speaking uh, about whether if we've learned anything from the, the wild weather we've seen this month and indeed earlier in the year as well, it's that weather forecasts can only prepare and protect farms to a certain extent. However, a team from the Bureau of Meteorology has been working to change that by developing a weather forecasting tool which could help prevent the risk of crop disease. General Manager of Water and Agriculture at the BOM, Matthew Colton, says the initiative would allow farmers to avoid unforeseen costs during each season. At the moment, the Bureau is working very closely with all of the agricultural RDCs around the country to try to explore what are the biggest opportunities for us to add value and impact to um, each of the sectors. In the grain sector, crop disease risk and its relationship to weather um, has come up as something that's worth uh, exploring. Um, it's certainly been raised by members of the industry of, of something that they see it as potential high value in us working with them 
we've known for a long time and there's a lot of research done by state agricultural agencies, by agencies such as the CSIRO, by the private sector um, that shows the relationship between certain weather conditions and certain crop diseases. And what we're really looking at is if we can see some of those conditions coming, you know, using weather forecasts and other products, can we um, help farmers make decisions that make them essentially more profitable? What do we know so far about calculating weather and correlation to disease? Yeah, so I guess there's, I mean, there's a huge range of crop diseases and I'd go as far to say nearly all of them would have some sort of relationship with the weather. Um, so it's not just rainfall, but also temperature, wind and hail. I guess just an, an example that comes to the top of my head is that we know that hail sort of exposes the plant to more risk of disease. Um, we know that certain wind conditions can lead to, I guess, transfer of disease between farms. Um, we know that certain diseases can flourish at certain temperatures. So I guess we're not trying to reinvent any of that research. It's quite well established. But what we're trying to do is see yeah, if we can develop tools and products um, that might be able to see those things coming um, each season. And that might inform farmers to make different decisions that mean they you know, avoid costly expenditure during the season that was unforeseen and they maximise the profit they get out of, uh, each, out of each crop. Are farmers having an input in this process? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we've really done in the last couple of years is we've built a team, a small team, a very dedicated team within the Bureau of Agricultural Specialists. So they spend most of their time on the ground working with farmers and other bodies in the industry like the RDCs and this opportunity around disease risk is actually driven from farmers and so we really relish that new opportunity to engage closely with farmers and in fact if, if I could leave your listeners with one thing at the moment it's if you're interested in this stuff please reach out um, at agriculture at bomb.gov.au um, because really we have near infinite opportunities to do stuff of value in the agriculture sector and one of our biggest challenges is prioritising it. So the more we know about what farmers see as important, the, the easier it is, is for us to make those decisions around prioritisation. And what are some of those prioritisations? What were some of the farmers saying that they would like more information around? Yeah, I guess to give an example, say we understand that, that this year is, a, is quite a bad year for stripe rust in wheat uh, in, in South Australia. You know, we know that temperature and rainfall impacts the spread of stripe rust. And we also know that it's actually really hard to get in and spray this season because we're having such frequent rainfall events. What we're exploring is if you could see a season like that coming, you know, would it, would it change the decisions you make at the start of the season in order to avoid some of those costs? You know, for some diseases, there's different varieties of certain species that have different disease risk. There's sometimes there's an option to treat your seed or your fertilizer before you plant it, which is a which is a costly option, but it may end up being less cost than having to spray it once it's in the ground. So they're the types of things we're trying to work through with farmers to firstly understand those relationships and the impact it has on their business. Secondly, to think about what would a product look like that would help foresee that risk coming and, and prepare for it. And I think the third bit, which is the most complicated bit, is we can help the product, but we need to understand the skill in the underlying weather forecast model to see whether um, there's enough skill in there to inform the product 
and then sort of if we tick those three boxes, uh, then we can sort of move into that development phase of developing products that can better help farmers. And in terms of timeline, it's very early stages now, but can we have a rough estimation on when this product may be able to be implemented and used? Yeah, so really at the moment and probably over the next six months, we're really working with the RDCs across different industries to explore these opportunities and essentially propose what a product might look like. Then, you know, if it stacks up and it, and, it, and it makes sense and we think it could work and then they'll go into development phase. But, you know, we're probably talking a couple of years down the track before um, some of these tools come online. And I know that sounds like a, a long time, but, you know, developing some of these things is, is costly and it's resource intensive and we need to make sure that there's a clear... Um, value proposition in doing so and that it will work before we go down that development path. General Manager for Water and Agriculture at the Bureau of Meteorology, Matthew Colton, speaking with Dimitri at Panagiotaris. Now, wouldn't hold your breath for any change to uh, more benign weather conditions. Even the Weather Bureau is forecasting a, a wetter than average summer for the east coast of Australia until January. Might not be quite as severe in South Australia, but we have seen a lot of wild weather and obviously rainfall as well in the, the past uh, few months. Now, Dennis Luke is an independent weather forecaster who follows the EU and United States computer models on climate, and he thinks we might see wet conditions through until March. He says the models are showing signs of another severe weather system coming at the end of November. Well, one of the things that I've noticed with the uh, with having a triple La Nina because we've had uh, two or three since the Second World War. And what I've noticed is the, um, the measurements are pretty much uh, the first two years. You might as well add that up and that's what you're going to get in the third year and that's pretty much what, what's happened this year. So one of the unfortunate things is that there's not good news because I actually forecast this earlier this year and I expected it to last for at least a minimum of um, 9 to 12 months, and it doesn't look like it's going away, and I'm expecting uh, more for the east coast of Australia, Uh, more so for Victoria than uh, New South Wales and Queensland, but it's still not going to go away just yet, and I'm expecting something probably later this month. And you've been looking at some computer modelling. What what are they telling you, and and why are they saying it's going to remain wet? Well, the sea surface temperatures along the equator are basically the driving force of this, the, uh, the ENSO, the, uh, the El Nino Southern Oscillating Index, and that's all um, showing uh, the actual position of where it's all going to uh, continue coming across, and that's what's going to keep happening for a minimum of probably uh, two to three months. At the, at the worst case scenario and uh, the best case scenario maybe earlier but I can't see that at the present time. We have been hearing from a number of farmers who've been saying this after a wet year quite often we get very dry years even a drought people are worried about that because uh, you know a lot of crops have been spoiled they don't have a lot in reserve they don't have a lot of fodder in reserve those sorts of things and they're worried that if it does become hot and dry people could be in for trouble again. One of the things that uh, La Nina, which is what we're experiencing at the moment, normally only turns up about once every seven to ten years. And as I said before, that uh, it's um, it's not an unusual thing for us to have two or three in a row. And this is unfortunate, and that's one of the things that we're going to be dealing with. So once we uh, transition back from La Nina to neutral, uh, the only 
possibility that we've got to come out of that is uh, either staying in neutral, which is highly unlikely, or going straight back into an El Nino. As to the severity of an El Nino, uh, that can be uh, from anywhere from a week to a strong one. Uh, the computer modelling at the moment is uh, unfortunately showing a little bit more than uh, just a weak one. Dennis Luke, independent weather forecaster, speaking with Michael Condon. We'll get into the weather forecast soon. Uh, it is 20 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, uh, we're talking a lot about wet weather. I know a lot of people are preparing for... Uh, potential flooding and uh, issues around the river and uh, it's uh, certainly causing issues on farms as well. If you'd like uh, a few tips on dealing with bogged machinery, then uh, you might listen to what Ben White has to say. He works for Condinan Group that conducts independent research on all sorts of things relating to agriculture and he says instead of just being reactive, farmers can do a few things to prepare for the possibility of getting big heavy harvesting machines bogged. It's a lot easier to get in underneath the machine on hard, dry ground than it is once it's in a bog. So people might want to think about getting under the machine and having a good look around at where there might be some recovery points. It's pretty rare that there'll be a recovery point on the rear of the machine. So normally what we'd uh, recommend is going for the front axle and obviously recovering the machine, pulling it backwards from the front axle. Unfortunately, people have tried attaching things to the back axle and it can stretch machines, it can cause damage. Uh, and in a lot of cases, um, there's just no uh, attachment point at the rear of the machine to fit one of these recovery straps. So always from the front axle and pulling it backwards. And that might mean that we need to fit some axle straps uh, and or a harness or a bridle uh, up the front that can actually uh, attach uh, that front axle. And you might want to put that in place pre-harvest or, or at least pre-bogging because uh, if there are some wet patches in the paddock and you expect that you might get into trouble, that's one thing to definitely make sure that uh, you've got ready to roll. It's a fairly quick transition too from rolling along to plop, you stop. It does happen pretty <laughs> quickly. It does. And look, and it might... You know, typically happens when you've got a, a box full of grain. Mm-hmm. So what we'll tend to do is try and lighten the load as much as we can. So backing the chaser right in, uh, you may need to trick the machine into thinking that the uh, auger's out of the saddle. It might be uh, fiddling with a sensor uh, or just popping it out of the saddle so that you can outload some grain out of the tank. That might mean that you need to tether it so it doesn't swing all the way across. But there are a few things you can do to sort of put yourself in the best possible position to recover that machine. Self-recovery is the, the best way before uh, attaching it to something, but if you can, but where you can't, by all means, you know, you might need to attach uh, a machine to, to recover it and that uh, typically will involve using a recovery strap in combination with that harness that I mentioned before. Just on that harness, are they difficult to fit? Are they much of a, a problem? I'd suggest that anyone who's looking to get a harness probably does a, a dry run, does a pre-fit to make sure that it is the right size and, and uh, they are all available in different lengths. So you want to make sure that, you know, once it's in that un- or under tension that it's not going to damage anything. There's you've got drive shafts and, and whatnot that, m- that make their way out behind that uh, front axle out to the drive wheels. So there are a few things to check. We often think about getting bogged to get out the bog chain, but you keep talking about um, straps, Ben. There's a point of difference there. There is. Don't go for chains. That's the underlying message in all of this. Chains just simply don't have the the strength that we need. And in a lot of cases, uh, under tension, if they fail, they can become a projectile, they can cause injury and they have caused death. So please don't use chains. Look for the, the recovery straps. They're incredibly strong for their weight. So if we look at the equivalent uh, strength uh, chain uh, to, to a strap, uh, we're talking about a difference of uh, 25 
kilograms for, for a, a 10 metre strap. And we're talking about a chain that's 25 kilograms per metre to the equivalent uh, working load limit. So use the synthetic gear. It's a lot lot safer, a lot stronger. Yes, it might cost a little bit of money, but goodness me, if you're bogged and you need to get out, then that's the gear to go for. Bit easier than lugging around a massive heavy chain too. <laughs> oh, ex- exactly, Joe. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And as I say, you know, there's dangers in that. And I look, I should add that from a synthetic uh, gear perspective, you know, avoid D shackles as well wherever you can. Um, there are soft shackles available, so a soft D, as they they sometimes refer to them as, have incredibly high uh, working load limits. Joe, there, there is you know a video that Josh and I uh, put together um, that's online that people can go and they can go to the Condition Group website and get, download it for free and have a look at it. Goes into a lot of detail about how those straps fit on, and um, you know people are welcome to go and, and have a look at that. Um, Grain Growers helped us put it together, and, and um, I think it's about fifteen minutes in total, but it does go into a lot of detail as to how the straps work, and, and uh, hopefully gives people a, a few visuals as to how they need to connect those. Ben White from Condinian Group speaking with Joe Prendergast. It's a bit of activity this weekend weather-wise. We'll get the latest from the Bureau of Meteorology with Senior Forecaster Simon Timkey. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. What's on the horizon for South Australia? Look, we've had a, a band of middle-level cloud move across western parts uh, uh, of the state this morning, now just extending over central and eastern parts. Uh, there are some, some showers in there, uh, and, there and there was a, quite a bit of thunderstorm activity late yesterday and earlier this morning. We did actually um, record some, some pretty big rainfall out west, 43 millimetres at, uh, at Nullarbor up to 9am this morning, so pretty wet out there. But the totals have, have dropped off a little bit uh, as it moved eastwards and we've seen sort of a few spots out uh, over Air Peninsula pick up as much as uh, sort of 5 to 10 millimetres, 13 millimetres at Sejuna but but generally the, the totals aren't, aren't all that big uh, coming out of that but there is a, a, a bit getting to the ground as that moves eastwards. Um, I think uh, uh, through the afternoon we'll see a little bit more development f- out to the west and there is potential for severe thunderstorms over uh, Air Peninsula, West Coast, uh, Northwest Pastoral District, maybe even into the far west of the northeast pastoral district as well through the afternoon. So uh, if you're out and about, do uh, do keep an eye out for, for warnings that we may issue for those parts. Uh, conditions have been a bit windy as well. We do have a fire weather warning out for Eastern Air Peninsula uh, for today for extreme fire danger over that part. Uh, and while we're on warnings, uh, we also have uh, coastal wind warnings out for most South Australian coasts and a downy mildew advice out for, for grape growers as well for, for wet conditions over the over the weekend. Um, over the weekend, a, a cold front will move across central and eastern parts, expected to move across western parts today, uh, and that cold front will take that more sort of significant weather over central and eastern parts as it moves across. Uh, so I think uh, for, for Saturday, uh, fairly wet conditions in parts and pretty windy conditions as well. I think there's probably a fair chance that we'll have a severe weather warning out for some parts of the state for damaging winds on Saturday, probably issue that later on this afternoon. Uh, and we'll see some showers and thunderstorms um, extending over most districts uh, during Saturday. Some of those storms, again, could be um, severe over the ag- parts of the agricultural area and the far northeast. Uh, and as I said, quite uh, wet conditions over, over parts of uh, the agricultural area in particular during Saturday. On Sunday, the, the front will have moved to the east and we will be in a, a cool to cold southwesterly airstream with fairly frequent showers over, over the agricultural area. I think we'll see some small hail and some thunderstorms about southern coastal districts a little bit later. 
And then through the early part of next week, we'll see that weather gradually contract southwards. So the showers mostly confined to the southern agricultural area Monday and Tuesday, and then those showers clearing Wednesday before redeveloping in the far west on Thursday, extending across the west and the south on Friday. So a bit of weather right through the next week. Uh, as far as the, the rainfall totals go for that period out to the end of Wednesday, generally expecting the order of 10 to 30 millimetres over, over most of the agricultural area, uh, Air Peninsula and West Coast districts, and maybe extending into the far south of the Pit Fla Flinders and the pastoral districts. Uh, 2 to 10 millimetres expected over the remainder of the Flinders and the pastoral districts. Uh, and we'll see some local higher falls, I think, about the Mount Lofty Ranges getting up to maybe... 30 to 50 millimetres and possibly those sort of totals with thunderstorms as well over the other parts, uh, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, Simon Timkey. A lot to keep an eye on there. Uh, it's the far west of New South Wales. The upper western will be partly cloudy. There's a medium chance of showers in the southeast. A slight chance elsewhere. There could be some thunderstorms around as well. Winds getting up to 35 to 50 k's an hour in some areas. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 14 to 20 degrees, but the day 32 to 38 degrees. The lower western will be partly cloudy. There's a high chance of showers, possibly a thunderstorm as well, getting down to 13 to 17, but the daytime temperatures reaching around 30 degrees. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. I'm so glad you could join me today for National Agriculture Day. It's a chance to celebrate and learn about Australia's farm sector and celebrate an industry that's a key part of our lives every single day. But how much do you think kids know about agriculture and farming? They love after animals, uh, sheep, horses and pigs. And what do you think would be good about being a farmer? Helping other people do their jobs. I am going to be a farmer because I have a shearing dog. Well, if you've got the outfit, you'll meet some budding farmers and get their take on agriculture on this National Agriculture Day. And I'd love to know how you go about teaching your children about where their food comes from. You can call me on 1300 222 or text 0467922891. That's happening in the next half hour. I'll also catch up with the Meat Workers Union about concerns around pay at the JBS Meatworks at Bordertown. That's coming up soon as well. But we'll find out what's making news first with Isabel Damon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. South Australia's Premier says he's optimistic the performance of the state's ambulance service will improve as more resources come online. The ambulance service missed its own target for responding to Priority 1 patients for the first time last financial year. It says it's been under extraordinary pressure during that time. Peter Malinowskis says more ambulances and paramedics coming online soon will make a difference. Two 14-year-old girls have been arrested after allegedly trying to steal a car at Greenacres overnight. Police say the pair got into the car at a petrol station on North East Road just after 12.30. 
The driver reversed into a petrol bowser before running off. The two Andrews Farm teenagers were later found on the same road and arrested and will face court at a later date. And Thomas Foods has passed the first hurdle in its plans to build a new abattoir near Murray Bridge. It's been granted an EPA licence with the first stage of the project creating about 350 jobs and around 2,000 once all stages are completed. However, the company will need to present an odour management plan by mid-December as well as an EPA-approved commissioning and wastewater treatment plan. Thomas Foods lost its previous Murray Bridge abattoir when fire ripped through it four years ago. More news at 1 o'clock. Thanks for that, Isabel. We've heard a lot about scams in the last couple of weeks with uh, Medibank and Optus falling victim to to hacks. And uh, anyone is vulnerable these days, including farmers. A farmer in Victoria is warning anyone using digital invoices to carefully check details after she fell victim, or nearly fell victim, I should say, to a very complex scam. Now, the scam has managed to intercept and change invoices from legitimate businesses, adding text that instructed the payee that the billing details had changed. As Luke Radford reports, the identity of the scammers or how widespread their attacks have been are still unknown. It was just another day in the farm office for Rebecca Hamilton, who was working through invoices when she noticed something strange. I manage the accounts within our business, so I was busy paying accounts and two invoices came upon my desk with red writing stretched across the middle of them, informing me that there's been a change of bank account details. And both of these invoices relate to suppliers who we have previously done business with. So whenever I have a change of bank account details, I always send a text message just to confirm that the bank account has actually changed. And when I heard back from the first person, it appeared they have kept the same bank account for two years. And so it rang an alarm bell. She also supplied me with the last four digits of their bank account. And it was, in fact, different to what appeared on the invoice that I was about to pay for $24,000 for the supply of lupins and barley. That person in question was Christina Fay, who has a business selling grain. So Beck uh, texted me, and I wasn't actually overly concerned to start off with. I said that I would check the account when I got home, which I did, and we had sent... We had sent them numerous, uh, well, not numerous, we'd sent them eight invoices in the past that had been paid, and this was an account that we had always used. And so I, I texted her and said, look, it's the same account. And she sent me back a copy. Uh, she took a photo of the invoice and it had on the invoice um, in red, uh, in capitals, please note change of bank account details from September 2022. And then the, uh, to all intents and purposes, it was, our invoice. Uh, it had our, our invoice number on it. It had our um, trading details. It was all correct, and but it had been changed. The account had been changed. So where had this scam come from? At first glance, Beck Hamilton suspected it may have come from a piece of online software she's just started using. No, first and foremost, it was the red writing and the fact that two invoices with a very similar format and as I've looked into it, they've both come out of the Zero Software Accounting Program, which we ourselves have actually just started using this financial year. So it was the red writing, the fact that there was a lot of similarity in these two invoices from two different suppliers. 
We put a series of questions to Zero about the incident. A spokesperson said while Zero can't comment publicly on individual customer matters or potential security incidents, the company takes allegations of fraudulent activity very seriously and will work with customers to investigate these types of incidents. It also said that in line with security obligations, the company is required to report any security compromises both to customers and the regulators. Christina Fay says she hasn't had any other customers using Zero report scam activity, which her accountant supports. However, there was another suspect. Zero works through your email account, so that's where the scammer could have gotten in. After Bic um, contacted me about this, I contacted our accounting firm, who they originally set up uh, the Zero for us, and they've not heard of it being intercepted from. Zero. But of course, when you when you send the invoices, you actually do send them from an email rather than from Zero itself. So you, you have to. The email goes out from your business email address, and it's received from their end on their business address uh, email address. So I guess it, it may well be that people have intercepted them at her end the invoices at her end rather than ours. Despite the confusion about where the scammer was coming from, what was clear was where the money would have gone. Here's Rebecca Hamilton again. When I looked at them closer, they both had the same BSB number, so I typed that into my computer just to see where that bank account is actually or where that where that bank, bank branch is, and it listed it as New South Wales and both of these suppliers operate and live in Victoria, so I I thought that was a bit alarming. The branches in question are registered as Westpac outlets. We put a series of questions to Westpac, who, like Zero, said they were unable to comment on individual customer matters due to confidentiality obligations. However, the spokesperson did say that business email scams are among the most common scams targeting Australians at the moment, where scammers impersonate a known business employee or supplier for example, by intercepting emails and sending false invoices. Rebecca Hamilton says at the end of the day, it's a warning to the farming community to stay vigilant, particularly in the age of digital invoices. Yeah, look, when I first started doing the accounts, all of my invoices came through the post and, um, and I really liked that system. Increasingly, we're being forced to pay invoices from our um, inbox. So invoices arrive into my inbox and I... I print them off and um, and pay them. The first was for $24,000. Um, as I said, for the supply of lupin and barley, we run a livestock business, so we buy in a lot of grain. Um, and the second was a quarterly payment for a lease block for $22,000. So, yeah, both very significant amounts of money. That was Luke Radford there with that report. He was speaking with Victorian farmer Rebecca Hamilton about scams that uh, a lot of people are facing at the moment. Seems uh, every second company you do with at the moment is uh, is facing some sort of concerns around scamming. So uh, we'll keep looking into the issues that uh, affect uh, you when it comes to agriculture and uh, and the way scammers can affect you. It is twenty one minutes to one. This week on Landline, we go mining for the crucial fertiliser, phosphate. This is basically the old inland sea. Millions and millions of years of uh, sedimentary runoff. The phosphorus is basically mixed up with clays from the inland sea. 
and earning money for carbon captured in soil. I'd like to know every kilo of beef that I put on the animals, how much carbon we're putting back in the soil. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. And most Australian women have a baby. They have choices. You can go public or private, midwife, obstetrician. You could perhaps have your baby at home or at hospital. They can also walk into a store and pick up formula if breastfeeding doesn't go well. But in the bush, it takes a whole lot of planning, countless hours of travel, days off work and stress when things don't go to plan and you're thousands of kilometres possibly from the help you need. Ellie Bradfield reports. Pip Clifford knows all too well both the joy and heartbreak of having babies in the bush. She has four children, two daughters and two sons, twins, who were stillborn in 2019. The boys were monochromatic twins, so they shared the same sack, same everything. So they were incredibly high risk and we had been advised that since day one. Um, Unfortunately, at 25 weeks, their cord got knotted and resulting in them passing. I remember it was a Monday and I just said to my partner, I said, something's not right. I'm going to take myself to the doctor. So I left him at home with Lucy, who wasn't quite two then. Drove myself to Quilpie, but the doctor there couldn't help me. She said, oh, drive yourself to Charleville and get an ultrasound, which was another 200 kilometres over, like, on top of the 110 I'd already done. So I drove myself to Charleville and I was alone. So I called my midwife, Nicola, and said, can you come to the scan with me? And she came with me on her, just her day off. So she came in and held my hand and just said to me, you know, like, I'm so sorry, honey, like, so sorry. It was It was very traumatic, but... I think having her there in a hospital that was solely thinking of me that day made it so much easier. You know, they Nicola organised a photographer to come in and she did a free photo shoot with us and the boys so that we had photos to mem- like remember them by. A number of the, you know, older ladies in town made some nice little dresses and a special box with, you know, for memories and all that kind of things with them. And I just feel like that was so much nicer than if I'd been in the city where it would have been like, oh, you know, come in, deal with this and then leave. We were given as much time as we needed and so much support. Bob was able to take, you know, a little bit of time to stay at home with us without having to stress about, you know, going out and doing cattle. He had the neighbours offering, you know, we can come and do boar runs or we can do this if you need. After losing the twins, Pip lost another pregnancy through an early miscarriage. But eight weeks ago, her rainbow baby, Sophia, arrived. I just remember, like, clutching her in my arms and just, you know, saying, like, you know, you're finally here. I know you're safe. And it was very emotional for everyone. What is that complicated mix of feelings like holding your healthy baby, but of course missing William and Oliver as well? It was it was really tough. Like you feel like I should, you know, I'm, I'm so happy she's here. But at the same time, you're like, you know, I wish the boys were here. They'd be three by now. They, you know, Lucy, while she was only one and a half and they passed, we, you know, we've got our pictures up. We've got their urn, you know, up on a shelf in the lounge room and some little toys that we got them for their first birthday. And she plays with them and says, oh, can I play with my brother's toys? And so, you know, she was happy. She said, you know, my little sister's finally here. It's taken so long for her to come. Um, She wanted to tell everyone in the hospital that she had a little sister. And it was so tough that 
you know, we were so happy that we had her finally, but it was so tough, you know, knowing that, you know, we should have all of our four babies, but we don't. Quilpie mum Cara Marsh knew that there would be a lot of travelling involved in having her third baby, but birthing without her husband by her side was not part of the plan. She went into labour five weeks early while at an appointment in Toowoomba. said that it was pretty high risk emergency, so I had to go in straight away. So he got in the car and drove but by the time I had to have her he was only in Roma so they actually offered to FaceTime him into the the birth which I was having a cesarean birth and the anaesthetist was holding the phone and showed him the whole experience probably a bit more than what he was bargaining for seeing but yeah he felt like even though he was so far away he didn't miss the birth and um, because she was 35 weeks and so tiny she was only 1.7 kgs born but healthy by the time I got out of recovery he was there with her. During her high risk pregnancy she had to fly a thousand kilometres to Toowoomba for appointments but her biggest worry was that Quilpie didn't have a GP which meant they had to travel for scans. I was scared that if I didn't feel lolly move and I couldn't have an ECG I had to go two hours to Charleville and I know myself that two hours is too long for responding to that. So that was something that was on my mind the whole time. That access to services is the biggest difference for many women. It's a gap Nicola Freiberg, who was also Pip Clifford's midwife, wanted to fill when she started as a lactation consultant in her hometown of Charleville. I didn't have great support breastfeeding wise with any of my babies, especially My first, when you really need breastfeeding support, that lacked a lot and living away from family was really hard. After having our second, who was preterm and coming back to a small rural remote community, there was just nothing. The closest lactation consultant between here and Longreach or here and Toowoomba is is me and Yeah, I feel that makes me excited to feel that it's a service that is very much needed and I'm able to provide it, whether it's in person or via video. She has her own story, though, after being flown out to Brisbane with her second baby when she went into labour at 28 weeks. She says her experiences have helped in her role. I do start a lot of my consults with I breastfed from 31 weeks with our second. You can absolutely do this and your baby can absolutely do this. And I think that gives them a lot of hope in that moment. There is a lot of extra stuff that goes with it, a lot of a lot of counselling, a lot of sort of social work and counselling. They've had that continuity of care with their midwife and then they're sort of they've put out, you know, they've been they've been pushed out into the community with no real ongoing support. And we do lack child health nurses out this way and that's a huge a huge gap in healthcare out here both seen as personally and professionally but yeah there's a lot of a lot of hats that you wear back on Arinia station after years of heartache life has turned around for Pip Clifford and her gorgeous little family life on the station is great we've had all this rain so there's that you know, we're not worrying having to worry about drought. Um, everyone's just super happy that we have Sophia. Lucy loves her. And, yeah, life's, you know, really back on track now.
That was uh, Ellie Bradfield speaking with Pip Clifford from Orinia Station just outside of Quilpie in the far west of Queensland. And if you'd like to see more on that story, you can go online to abc.net.au. And the ABC wants to hear from you uh, as part of the birth project at abc.net.au slash birth project. It's looking at, at birthing in the bush and uh, and what's uh, what it's like for people who perhaps don't live in capital cities when it comes to giving birth. Now, uh, the Meat Workers Union or the uh, Australasian Meat Industry Employees Union is uh, meeting with workers in Bordertown today. Negotiations of a, a pay deal between the meat workers at Bordertown and the meat work company JBS have come to a bit of a head. Uh, the union is concerned that uh, workers could be locked out uh, for giving notice of their intention to take industrial action over these ongoing pay negotiations. AMIEU branch secretary Shara Anderson spoke with Rebecca Chave earlier today about what was happening. Uh, so currently during the negotiations, the company has now put an offer out to have the workers working 40 ordinary hours and that sees them working less. Uh, earning less than what they would do currently um, when performing 40 hours. Um, more importantly, these workers are already on a 9.5-hour day, so they start at 6 a.m. and they finish at 10 to 5. To try and um, force the, the workers to stay an extra half an hour just throws out any sort of work-life balance for the, for the workers. So you're going to be on site today. Who are you meeting with and what are you hoping to be discussing? Uh, we have requested a meeting with the company. I, I haven't received the response to that request. Um, however, we have popped in a right event room. We'll be meeting with our uh, the workforce, um, essentially, to see where they would like to go from here. So how long has this been going on for? Uh, we've been in negotiations with the company since February. Um, and, yeah, this latest offer is, is quite new, only a couple of weeks new. And, yeah, the, the workers, just we're looking for an increase, not a decrease. Um, and, you know, we need that work-life balance. So what workers has now gone into trying to negotiate an agreement? The workers have offered the company 39 hours, a guaranteed of 39 hours, but they'd like to be paid at overtime rates. They don't want to, They don't wish to go backwards. They wish to go forwards and try and keep up with the cost of living. What's your understanding of what workers have been told? Uh, well, the, the company issued the union with its notice, with its intent to um, take that response action. We find it very disproportionate for the action that the, the workers are taking in that they've enacted an overtime ban and, and a two-hour stoppage. Um, you know, to, to then force them out for three weeks, obviously the company is intent on making sure that these workers lose money. These are the same workers that have worked all through the pandemic have worked excessive amounts of overtime during that time. They've also volunteered for over 20 Saturdays uh, in the last year. You know, the workers are simply saying, all you need to do is ask um, and pay us the appropriate rate. There's no need for us to be going backwards, not when their profits are going forward. How many workers are being affected by this proposed lockout that the union is saying, uh, JBS is, is, is saying they will do, if, if these workers do take this action? Uh, there's up to 200 people that could be affected as they're the direct employees of JBS. The, the other employees are labour hire, so they will be affected by the disruption, um, but they, uh, JBS won't be able to lock them out as they're, they're not their employees. What does this do for the, for the public reputation of the company? I find that absolutely disgraceful. 
I mean, these workers have seen them through. They've also seen them through understaffed, you know, long periods of being understaffed. These workers, when called upon, are coming to their aid every single time. We've seen plants um, shut down during COVID and this plant in Bordertown picked up the slack. They deserve a lot more. It's disgraceful. So will the action now be taken by workers? Uh, that'll be up to the members for them to decide what they wish to do, uh, their livelihood, um, and it will be up to them. And how long are you expected to stay in the region? Uh, we'll be in there. We'll be on site today uh, for all of their breaks. So we'll be, we'll, we'll be leaving late this afternoon. AMIU Brant's Secretary Shara Anderson speaking with Rebecca Chave. Now, the ABC has contacted JBS for comment and we'll bring you an update when we receive uh, information from the company. We've also contacted the Australian Meat Industry Council as well. But speaking about Meatworks, uh, Thomas Foods International has been granted a licence approval for uh, an EPA, an Environmental Protection Authority, to operate the abattoir that's being built at Palamana, just north of Murray Bridge. Uh, this is is the replacement of the facility that burnt down several years ago. There are a few steps, though. There still needs to be an odour management plan uh, put in place. That's uh, due to be provided by the 16th of December. Um, The EPA-approved commissioning plan is also required before processing starts to ensure things like the wastewater system is operating effectively as well. Uh, There's also uh, the need for the facility's wastewater treatment system and the way the wastewater is going to be um, irrigated and and managed through the licence system also has to be uh, dealt with. So there's uh, a lot of movement happening with that. It's been a couple of years since the sod was turned, so uh, we'll hear more about how that goes as uh, production ramps up from Thomas Foods International. Finally today, today is National Agriculture Day. It's a chance to celebrate, to learn about Australia's farm sector and uh, celebrate an industry that's part of our lives every single day. But how much do you think kids know about agriculture and farming and how much effort do you put into making sure they know where it comes from you can text me 0467 922 or phone 1300 991 to let me know about some of the ways you go about letting your kids know where food comes from brooke nindorf took the uh, mic to tumby bay kindy to find out what those kids make of it i am four my name is georgie i'm five my name's miller Miller, first of all, do you know what the word agriculture means? No. Georgie, do you know what the word agriculture means? No. Do you know what a farmer does? Uh, does goes on tractors. Miller, do you know? Yes, I do know. They plant wheat. What do you know about what happens on a farm, Georgie? They look after animals, uh, sheep, horses and... Pigs. Who else helps out the farmers? More people. Their mum, his mum and their kids. What about the truck drivers? Yes. What do the truck drivers do? They drive the trucks and drive the tractors for him. What are in the trucks that get driven? Grain, sheep, baby horses. They're called ponies. And what do you think would be good about being a farmer? Helping other people do their jobs. I am going to be a farmer because I have a shearing top. You've got a shearing top? So you're a shearer. What does a shearer do? Uh, shear sheep. How do they do that? Uh, with a shearing thing. Miller, do you know where food comes from? Yes. You grow food and then you get to eat some. 
tomatoes, uh, even fruit and carrots and lots of other food and stuff. Georgie, do you know where milk comes from? Cows and farms. What about meat? Do you know where meat comes from? Yes, it comes from a big place where they make meat. Chase and I'm four. Lenny and I'm five. Lenny, do you know what the word agriculture means? It might mean that you don't know that someone is talking to you. It might mean that you might not find it. Lenny, do you know what happens on a farm? My dad shears sheep. He crouches with the header. What does that mean? He crouches all the hay and the wool. <laughs> he rides tractors and tried to crutch hay. What are the crops looking like at the moment? There's no crocs at the farm. No what? No crocs. What about the crops, the wheat and the barley? Have you got wheat and barley out there? Oh, yeah. Wheat turned into bread, barley turned into hay. Do you know where food comes from? The store. How does it get to the store? You could kill something to get meat. Yep, and where does milk come from? Or cows. And so how does it get to the shop? factory takes it to the shop and then the milk factory just drops it back. Would you like to be a farmer one day? When I grow up. Why would you like to be a farmer? Because that's where my dad works. No, didn't you say you were going to be a cowboy? Oh yeah, I did. You could be a cowboy as well. Yeah, you, you can, can be, be whatever you like. Scout. I'm five. Scout, do you know what the word agriculture means? It makes us have food, beans and wheat mix. It helps, then it helps the country by, um, by helping the country by growing food and it's healthy for the country. And where does beans and wheat mix come from? Plants from the paddock. And what do you know about farms? That you have to look after them. Has your dad put in some crops this season? Yes. What has he put in? Beans. Has he got some wheat? Yes. What about some barley? Yes. How are the crops looking this year at your farm? Good, because they, because they are nice and healthy. What makes crops so healthy? What do they need to grow? Water and sun. Do you have sheep on your farm? Yes, lots of them. Maybe 10 or 11. Would you like to be a farmer when you grow up? Yes, because my dad and mum were. My name is Albie and I'm five years old. Albie, do you know what the word agriculture means? Um, no. What do you know about farming? They've got animals on their farm. Um, like sheep, cows, pigs, roosters and ducks and sheep. Do you know where food comes from? Um, apple trees and some of some berries from bushes and, and I think I've had enough to say. Oh, you've had enough to say? Yeah. All right. No worries. Thanks, Albie.
I think I've just about had enough to say as well. That was Brooke Nindorf getting shut down by Albie, who was wanting to go back to playing at the Tumby Bay Kindy. Some well-informed kids there. Uh, Deb liked it as well. She says, that was a fabulous segment with uh, Brooke and the little tackers. Uh, do you know where your food comes from, Caroline Winter? Oh, now I feel like I'm under pressure. <laughs> Definitely not from the supermarket. How about that? Brooke has such a way with kids, she doesn't does. she? She's the kid she whisperer. brings out the best in them. We've got a heap on the show. We're going to be talking stranger danger because there's been a couple of incidences in and near schools. But importantly, for Friday, we're bringing back what Ian from Birkenhead asked for on Monday. We've got his campaign ready. You have to stay tuned. Keep listening to your ABC local radio as we approach one o'clock. Time for news. Afternoons with Caroline Winter. I had the Steve Austin doll. Yeah. Did it make the... Who of this era did not run around in slow motion doing that? Exactly. Caroline Winter. ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.